This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Sefarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. So, good morning to everybody, or afternoon, whatever, however you work the mornings, afternoons here. Um, it's, it's, it's been an incredible time here. I, it's very interesting because my father's kind of Rachel was a real literature. He grew up in Kovna. He had a cousin who came to South Africa. Um, she, she passed away many years ago without a family. Um, and in those days, people went to South Africa, was a one-way, for Yiddishkeit, it was a one-way street. And people retained a certain sense of, um, you know, formality, but Yiddishkeit itself took, uh, was a very, was a down spiral, and that's how my father, South Africa was the place you went to when you left, and for Hashem, it's like, a, it's amazing, I guess, the seeds were planted and everything, so it's just been, I, I didn't expect a, a hill of this size and scope and depth, uh, so it's, it's been a very amazing trip for myself. I want to speak a little about tefillah. Um, tefillah is something we all connect to, and yet I think that there is a, 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 an aspect of it that I think we may not understand, possibly the most basic aspect of tefillah. Tefillah comes to us as everyone has things that they need, and we know Hashem can give it to us, and we ask our for things we need. That's, I guess, in a, in a nutshell, how we view tefillah and what we understand in tefillah. Um, so we might understand that as being a vehicle for connection with Hashem, but we certainly don't. Um, we certainly don't feel that it is anything more than that. It's primarily a way of asking for our needs as per need, and that's that. There are a lot of problems with that model. One is then why a rigid and frozen. Um, format. So yes, we can add a lot, but at the end of the day, it's extremely rigid. What we have to say is kind of very, very set. I mean, wouldn't it be better than sort of a kind of Christian model of everyone saying prayers and their words for what they want, what they need, and so on? And the Rambam, interestingly enough, the Rambam asks, the Rambam says that they made it in Hebrew in a rigid format so that people could express it with the appropriate language. Which is also kind of strange, because um, say it in your words, and say it as you wish. Does God really care about grammar and correct pronunciation? I mean, he cares about what you're thinking, what you want, what you have in your heart. Um, one more point about filler that's mentioned actually in this week's, in, in this week's um, parasha. And it says, Bas Hanan. So the Medrash says that Vo'eschanan is a, um, one of the words that forms, um, it, it's a word that implies tefillah. And the Medrash says there are 10 different synonyms for speech, and all of them uh, exp- are used in the context of tefillah as well. Um, it's one of the things fascinating about the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language as such is relatively poor in words. 
The, voc- the sum total vocabulary in, in Hebrew is minimal. Um, the pers- Ibn Tibbin, who translated the Rambam's Arabic works, which is almost everything, into Hebrew, writes that he was very frustrated because in, in, in Arabic there are many times more words to express certain things. And when the Rambam used one word or another, in Hebrew, he had to make do with one word to cover a few different nuances. Rav Shalashvahar speaks about why that is so one would expect it to be the other way around. One would expect Hebrew to be superior. Rav Shalashvahar discuss it. It's not our point. But th- therefore, when we find in Hebrew a word with ten synonyms, it's going to be incredibly important because the language is not naturally rich in synonyms, and when you find that speech can be expressed in ten different ways, then there must be something to it that is um, that's so important. I, I guess I would like to um, I would like to push the question: Why is it so important that every single form of speech finds a role in tefillah, and vice versa? The totality of tefillah encompasses all forms of speech. It's, it's almost a, a synonym. Um, so, to address that point, just at a root level, just to show where it's so, we find that Adam Harishon was called Nefesh Chaya. He will be a living soul. And there's a famous Targum who, who defines a living soul as Ruach Memalala a spirit that can speak. That in itself has raised a lot of eyebrows because we would think speaking is one of our lesser thinking, intelligence, should be a much stronger definition of man. But be it as it may, he says that. Rashi also says, later in the parsha, that the world, it says in the Pasuk, no rain had come and nothing had grown. Rashi says because man was not there to be mispalo. And since you didn't have man to be mispalo, nothing could grow. So man's primary identity is described as the one who can speak, and man's first and probably most fundamental activity is to pray. And, and they stand side by side. My, my, my primary talent or asset and my primary ability to produce is speech to prayer. So prayer is focused uniquely on speech, which again begs the question, if Hashem can read our minds, which He can, and knows exactly what it is that we need, why bother to speak? We must ask Hashem, so think your prayers. Hashem can, uh, Hashem can hear you um, you know, when your thoughts are just thinking about something. And I'd like to push the question a little bit further about prayer. If we believe that Hashem brought difficulties to us, um, creates the lack, then why do we need to tell Him what's our problem? This question was true about the rain. The world had no people, the world was missing rain. Hashem knows it's missing rain, it's His world, He wants it to grow. So why is it that we're waiting for man to be created to say his tefillahs? I mean, it's not that Hashem needs to be informed what the world needs. It's, uh, it's not that he needs anything but to bring rain. You created plants that need to grow. There's seeds waiting to sprout. Um, you know what they're missing. 
and you have the ability to do it, and men is, doesn't, is not around. Why do you need to create man to pray and to do it? Those are really questions that, that go at the very heart of what tefillah is. So I, w- I would like to get to an understanding of tefillah that I think is more fundamental than the way we look at it. It's not that, it's, it's not that we shouldn't ask requests, but it's, it's much deeper than that. Let's give an example. Let's say um, I have a roommate or a neighbor or a friend, very, very good terms. Um, we, 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 we like each other, we, we blend each other's stuff, and never a problem to borrow something from him, her, and so on. So let's take an example. I have a roommate, just more convenient to deal with, and um, whenever I ask him to borrow his phone, he has no problem with it. So I start taking the phone whenever I need it and using it. Um, I start doing it to many things like that. And I say, well, you never seem to mind. I'll take it. And I don't say anything about it. It will create some sort of friction. You may choose to try it, but I don't, I don't advise it. But just, I think, using your imagination, um, you could, it, it will be irritating. And why is it irritating? Because, I mean, anytime he asks you for it, day or night, they have no problem giving the phone, and yet when he takes it without asking, we have a problem. And the answer is activities are defined by speech. In other words, um, when I do something, then the accurate description of what I did is usually in speech. Let's give an example. Someone comes in and I serve him something. I serve him a glass of water. You can say, it's so nice to have you. Could I offer you a glass of water? I could say, here, it's hot outside. Have the water. Or uh, I guess i got to give you some water. Those are same glass of water. The statement really defines whether it's something I love doing for you, whether it's something I'm okay doing with you, or something I, I'd rather not. But, you know, what can I do? So the reality in the world is not action, but action as defined by a caption. Um, once upon a time, before they used to have internet, they had something called newspapers, where they would print like what's happening and with pictures. And every so often, uh, a picture um, wouldn't have a caption, it was left out for whatever reason. And, it, and it always, you always find it irritating. What is this? I mean, I, I, I know what the things are. These are people, this is cars, this is a river, this is, but it's a picture of what? And the same reality, when they put a caption under it, okay, it, it gives it meaning. Because action themselves are sort of a raw material. And the meaning behind it is given by words. That is how our world is. Intelligence and understanding is hidden. No one knows what I think when I'm giving a glass of water. So really what counts, so when I give someone a glass of water, what am I doing? It's really what my intention is, but intention is me and only me. When I say it, I've applied my intention, I've expressed my intention in a way that everybody sees the caption under this glass of water and what it is. So let's take Akkadish Baruch Hu and the world. Akkadish Baruch Hu is beyond. There is nothing just like thought can never, what I'm thinking, no one will ever know. Um, because 
thought is private. It's, it's, it's unique every, to each individual, and it's hidden. Certainly, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is hidden from the world. Things in the world have potential meaning, but they don't have an overt meaning. They don't have a meaning that I can easily label with. So what are these things? Um, what do they say? And so on. All of these things are not expressed, and they remain hidden. Man is the bridge between two worlds. And when man recognizes what different items are, he's able to label it. Just like when Adam Arishan gave the name to all the animals. It wasn't just to think up of a name, or even they speak about in Hebrew what the root letters are. That's less important. A horse is the animal that you'll ride on. A donkey is the animal that you'll carry stuff on. This is there, a bee is something I'll give you honey. It's to express what is this, the role of this entity. I see the bee, but until I don't label it a devourer, whatever it means, and, and all its ramifications, I haven't put a label on it, and it doesn't have meaning. That's the power of speech of man, to go through the world and to label each item good, bad, purpose, and so on. I can label things that are good, I can label things that are bad. I can say these activities are positive, these activities are negative, and so on. What I'm supposed to be doing is drawing from what HaKadosh Baruch Hu is telling me. And so I learned the Torah, and it says this, is, this tree is good and life-giving, this tree is bad and poisonous, so I appropriately label it, and that becomes its reality. Let's move over now to tefillah, and let's understand tefillah at its root level. Let's go back to that example I gave of my poor roommate, whose cell phone I've been borrowing lately without informing him. So what's happening here? This phone, these phones, the cell phones, I know that they have an owner, but the label that this belongs to somebody is given by people. A, a lawless society where people don't care about labels, it, there's no such thing. I mean, I don't think we understand the concept of mine, yours, and his. I, I know we can, we can look at our own little children. Probably everybody's little children here are, are wonderful angels when they're born. But one of the things, the hardest things to teach my children when they were at a certain age was the concept of yours, his, and mine. Those words were very tough to grasp. In mine means anything I see or found. That's the, that's the elementary meaning of mine. It takes a long time. It's a very abstract concept that, no, this is your brother's, and this is his, and this is that. I had a friend of mine who had a, a boy and a girl, and the boy was first, the girl second. They would fight like cats and dogs. They're very difficult. Um, and finally, I don't remember what age it was, but he sat them down, and he spoke to them a very strong musashmus about the gift of sharing and so on. And when he finished, he wanted to make sure that they actually knew how to implement it. And he told the boy, now, I want you to show what sharing is about. So he goes into his room, 
he comes back with his sister's toy and he says, I am sharing my sister's toy. So, so you know, the concept of mine, yours, and his is really, it's a concept that human intelligence draws from somewhere else and is able to put it on something. So whenever I ask you for the phone, the asking and the thank you are the label that this phone is yours. By saying those words, I'm saying this is your phone, despite the fact that I'll be using it now. And as far as that ownership is concerned, um, that's fine. I don't have a problem with giving you the time on the phone. Um, I'm, I, that's where I share. But it's my phone. To take away ownership is something I, I won't tolerate. When you stop asking me, and therefore not saying thank you either, just take it as that, you're declaring by your silence that you own it. It's yours. That's something I don't want to do because um, it's something that is innate to a person. If you ask me for a gift, if, you, if somebody comes and asks me for stucker, that's also fine because he's saying it's yours, it's your um, prerogative to choose to give it, and I would like it to be given. So by asking for it, and thanking you, I'm also acknowledging your ownership to it. So, so even if I ask you to give me the phone, you have another phone and I really need a phone, could I please have the phone? I'm not, I'm not overstepping the boundaries of ownership. I am basically declaring ownership and asking for it. The, um, it I, I, there's a very interesting medrash, just this, on this point alone, that I think becomes enlightened it says that in the time of the Mabul, it says the land became filled with Hamas, which is robbery, thieving, and so on. And the Medrash brings the following story. People did something very, very shrewd. They would overturn, somebody was selling a cart of vegetables, they would overturn the cart, and each person would take a small amount of vegetables that was worth less than a pruta, than the minimal amount that halacha determines that you have to get return. In other words, anything over a pruta, which we, we translate as a penny to, in, in, in absence of value, it's in, American, in America it's about, I don't know, 10 cents, I don't know, rand, it's probably a bunch of rands, whatever it is, it's, it's, that's the value. So they would take a little less, and that way they could get away with it. So I think what the Medrash means to point out is not so... If, if I want to steal something because I'm greedy, and the main point is the taking of the money, a vegetable worth less than a fruit is really not a lot, and it's really not... If it's not worth... If it's not enough to have to return, it's obviously not giving me much. But there was something, an evil, much deeper than taking the money. It was erasing the sense of boundary and ownership. So... I, I, this way I can wheedle away your vegetables and, and you don't own them because everything is taken away sliver by sliver you have nothing left so yes, um, I've, technically it, it falls under the boundary of, of, of stealing by the way, halakhically you cannot steal any amount even less than a pruta it's just what you have to return but it, what people did was the, the, the total erasing of boundaries where mine is mine, yours is yours, his is his, and I must respect it because that's something very, very to the core of a person. So we have the concept of ownership 
and the concept of declaring ownership and so on, that is probably this, one of the strongest ideas that we can express, and certainly in interpersonal relationships, we need to express. When somebody bothers, somebody calls us at an odd time, so part of it bothers us, it's, it's late at night, and we are, um, and I'm tired now, or went to sleep, or want to go to sleep, so there's this, the irritation of you know, being woken up, or whatever it is, but there's a, the stronger animosity is, why does he think that he can call me whenever he wants to? It's my personal space, my personal time, my personal affair. Why is he intruding on mine? It's a very, very strong um, element of, of, of a sense of, of self that comes with it. And that's why we're so, it's so important that we declare mine, yours, and so on and so forth. That's between people. Akarish Baruch and the world. So the struggle between the re- recognition of Hashem as the source of everything and myself as a being who is viable and an entity who has a self, there's a tug of war in that. In as much as Akarish Baruch gave me a sense of self and I, then everything is mine like the little baby that crawls out, and whatever it sees and whatever it can grab is theirs. Our instinct is to take everything, and it's ours. You know, I saw it, I found it, especially if I worked for it. Everything is mine, including myself. People are, have always tainus HaKadosh Baruch Hu when someone passes away without thinking about where they come from. If someone left me a car for 10 years, I got used to it, and then he says, you know, I really need it back. I mean, you have little hot feelings, even though he gave you the car. Um, you know, it's kind of... Our sense of self and possession tends to negate... That's our very sense of self. If you take a look at Adam Harishan, his struggle with the Nachash... The Nachash was a great salesman. Um, some people claim that salesmen ever since have been Nachashim have been snakes, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave that aside. Um, the Nachash came with a pitch, and he told Adam Arishan the one thing that he pitched was, you can be like God. You don't have to stand under God. You don't have to take orders and direction from God. God is telling you right and wrong. You will be a colleague of God instead of a subordinate. That was the one weakness of Adam, because in as much as we have a sense of self, which by necessity means we exist, we wouldn't have a sense of self, we wouldn't exist. That sense of self is in conflict with the sense of Gershbarach. What we need to do is to sort of um, own up and express that all the things that we get and we have comes from there. The way to do it best is not to thank. Thanking is wonderful. But when you ask beforehand, in other words, when the person took my phone without permission and he thanks me for it, it's not, it's not ideal. When he asks beforehand for it, and, and especially if you ask nice and say, you know, I know you must need the phone now, but I have something very, very important. So that's acknowledging fully my possession, and then you're asking for it. So whenever we go through the motion of acknowledging possession, asking and thanking, we are the 
we are declaring the mine and the his in the strongest way possible. When we ask for things in tefillah, it's not to inform HaKadosh Baruch of what we need. Believe me, he knows what we need because he's the one who created the problem in the first place. If, if, if I need to eat, it's because HaKadosh Baruch who created me, I need to eat. And Baruch HaLeinu is superfluous in that sense. HaKadosh Baruch knows what I need. He's created the lack. But I need to say, HaKadosh Baruch I need to, whenever I start something, I need to say, Rebbe Shalom, I have a need for this, and it is yours to give. I'm asking you for it, and I'm thanking you for it. So that process is labeling every single element of what I take in from the world as being Hashem's to start with, and, it, and if I'm getting it, I'm getting it by courtesy of His um, benevolence, and I am thanking and owning up to that fact. So we are tackling probably the strongest issue of what um, of, of 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 that divide between man and God that can allow for that error of feeling possessive about things that are not ours, and by starting the process with filler we are, in effect, giving it the appropriate framework. Tefillah is not post our needs. It's pre-need. Chazal gave the tefillah at three times. Every time there's a change, and things can no longer be seen as as were. So when the sun rises in the morning, when the sun begins to change its trajectory um, down, and when the sun disappears, those are three spots where I sense um, naturally an instinctive um, change. And it's going to require a new process of giving. I can't just rest on what was. Something new is, is going to happen. And I start the day by saying, Rebbe you possess everything. The first three brachas of praising HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You know, when you praise a human being, you sort of are sort of um, working him up t- so that you're praying on some of his weak points. Everybody likes to be praised and someone comes and pats me on my back and, and hugs me and tells me, you know, you're the kindest person I ever met. You're really wonderful and so forth. It's going to be very hard to resist giving something. Not for the right reasons. It's just that, you know, it, it, it prays. When we talk to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that's not what we're doing. The praises to HaKadosh Baruch Hu are the acknowledgement. You have life in your hands. You have rain in your hands. You, 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 the Atta Gibar, which is the core part of the Ovals, is that which labels HaKadosh Baruch Hu as having everything. I go through tefillah and I ask for everything that I'm going to need. It's not the exceptional things I need. If I have now a particular need for X or Y or Z, it's the things that a person naturally needs. But I need to say, may I use this? May I have this? Because the statement of may I have this is the statement that's going to um, give us the right, um, the right interaction. 
with HaKadosh Baruch Hu's benevolence. That's why it was so important that Chazal give us the right framework to ask for things and, and for the ongoing asking. Let, let's take one example. Let's take an example of something where Chazal giving us the right words for it. Everybody needs parnasa. Everybody needs to have money to, to, um, to, to, to be able to live. How would we phrase that? Well, uh, depending on how polite you are, more or less polite, the statement would be, please send money, cash preferably, and uh, you know, the sooner the better. Um, and I guess, you know, one way or another, we'd find an elegant way to express that. Is, is a lot of money, or is just money dumped on a person of bracha? It's not. What is, what is the ultimate, what's the right way of parnasa? Baruch Aleinu, that a person works, produces, and sees bracha in Maizyadav, is the right way to describe it. HaKadosh Baruch wants every person to produce, and somebody who's producing in Torah and, and mitzvahs is certainly producing, but, but we want, we don't want a free gift, an unearned gift in, 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 in the world of, of, of finance, let's say, is not a bracha. Bracha is a specific, I want to be able to bring something out in the world, I want to plant seeds, and I want those seeds to grow magnificently. So Chazal gave us, this is a human need, and every single one, what's our first need? Atachonin, they, they put it even before tshuva. They put atachonin for tshuva. Would we have thought that way? I don't know. But Chazal laid out for us what are our real needs in, in the right order, in the right expression. Some of it we instinctively feel, some of it needs some thinking about, some of it was sort of looked a bit puzzling, but no matter what, if we learn to say it, we're expressing the appropriate requests. What are we asking for? Um, I, was, I used to teach in Shatorah, there was a fellow there, you know, actually, everybody knows him now, Gavi Sassoon, Gavi Sassoon, who tragically lost his family a year and a half ago, he was from Japan, um, and he grew up in Japan, he knew Japanese well, I mean, he grew up in Japan, he came to Shatorah at the age of 20 or whatever, he was once at the coastal, at the, and um, he saw a group of Japanese tourists, and one of them put a piece of paper into the wall. And he was very curious as to what the person asked for. So when they left, he took it out. He read Japanese fluently. And his piece of paper said, make Japan number one. That was the, that was, so, I, you know, I, I guess Chazal didn't see it that way. It's not, I haven't found that, that this filler. Maybe it's, they'll uncover it yet, but it, has, it hasn't made it yet. Chazal gave us the appropriate structure of what it is that our needs are and how to express it. So when we follow their formula, we are conducting that exercise. We are starting by acknowledging the ownership. Then we are framing our use of the world as a request, and then we're thanking for it. So, so what we're doing, in effect, is establishing... The, the correct relationship between Hashem and us. And that's why it's so important to verbalize it and to say it. And, and, and if we can say it in Hebrew, if we can learn the meaning of the words in Hebrew, I mean, halachically, yotz in Hebrew without meaning, but it's certainly incredibly 
um, so much more effective because when a person thinks of something, A, he's not producing a label on something. Yes, on an internal level, when I think of it, it's already, a, you know, since Hashem reads my thoughts, it's already something. But in terms of, of concretizing it, um, we know ourselves that when we say something clearly, you know, when, when, when a kid says, I'm sorry, you ask him, say it clear and loud, loud and clear. It, 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 our ultimate concretization of our thoughts and feelings are through speech. So if we were to go through this process in thought, it's a good beginning, but it lacks that concretization of speech. And since man's job in the world is primarily speech, meaning plowing the fields and bringing crops is a job that we have, to work the fields and to, and to watch it. But the bridge between the two worlds, that we look around a world of bounty, and we put labels on it and say, this is God's, this is God's, this is God's, this is God's benevolence, this is God's benevolence, this is God's benevolence. We bridge the gap between the unseen God and the seen world. We put the labels on it where it belongs to, Lashem Aratzumaloa. Chazal say that if you take and you eat something and you, you um, haven't made a brach on it, it's as if you steal things from the Beis Hamikdash, things that are hektish. It means because if you haven't labeled it, it expresses the exact point we're saying. If you take something without making a brach on it, you haven't labeled it as Hashem's. Once you label it, the things that were in Hegdish, the things that belonged to Hegdish, were for public use. That's what they used all the time. They, 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 you know, you brought carbonus for everybody, you brought the wine, the, everything there wasn't hoarded. But if I take it not appropriately, then I am denying Hegdish's core ownership. The, 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 the Beis Hamikdash doesn't own it. When I say a bracha, before I make a bracha, I take something that's not mine, and if I don't ask for it, if I don't acknowledge it, then I am taking something that's not mine. The minute I acknowledge it, then Hashem wants me to take it. So, so, so the realm of bracha and tefillah goes to the core of who we are and what we are. It's, it's so helpful because tefillahs are sometimes answered, sometimes not answered. But tefillahs serve the purpose, even when it's not answered. When, when, when somebody is not well and I'm spoiled for him, the recognition that life and death is in Kaddish Baruch's hands is the most important statement I could make. And it, it, we, we can say it like this, and we mean it, but it's not a very it's 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 not as powerful as when I see somebody struggling, and 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 I'm able to 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 to, to verbalize it and 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 say it out loud. The tefillahs, wherever we do, um, Hashem does answer tefillahs, and many examples, and and Akash Baruch should be about tefillahs, should answer tefillahs. But the most important activity we do in the relationship of the world to God and where man stands is when we use our most fundamental core of, of deeper of speech, which is labeling things, putting the unseen as a visible attribution to whatever is seen. That's who man is. He's that pivotal point that takes from the unknown to the known and combines the two. 
it, we use our Korach HaDibur, we verbalize it. And when we, when, by, by acknowledging that it's yours to start with, and it requires request and permission to use it, and gratitude in return, we've, we've joined the two worlds, so to speak. And we've taken, the, we've taken Hashem's possession and pasted it on the world. And there's no greater thing a person can do than become that bridge. And we should be Zohar, Tfilah should be heard. And we should Zohar also to fulfill our core mission, which is to create that awareness and, and um, that bridging of the two worlds together that our Tfilahs are meant to do and, and in fact do. Thank you. Thank you.